The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I don't know about you, but I'm from that generation of parents who absolutely love the Wiggles. Maybe you're from the generation of kids who loves the Wiggles. I don't know. But hot potato, remember? Hot potato, hot potato. You won't hear any more from me, but you know the song, hot potato, hot potato. It's a great game. And it really is evocative of this issue of it's fun to hold on to, but I better pass it on to someone else before the music stops. And it's a great way to explain a particular problem we are going to have with climate change. Who is going to be holding potato? In fact, it's more like a grenade when the music stops. And when the music stops is not going to be exactly the thing we think it is with climate change. We have this idea in our heads that one day there'll be a really big storm and suddenly we'll realise that all of these houses on floodplains and on foreshores are no longer very valuable. But that's not the moment when the music stops and the grenade goes off. This week on When the Facts Change, I want to talk about this game of climate change hot potato, how it will work in New Zealand, and how the government and others are starting to build a crescendo of music, legislative, regulatory, political music, which at some points will stop and create all sorts of carnage. Also, create an opportunity for people. Because just imagine you won Lotto. We all do this occasionally. And we've bought this most amazing seaside batch. It looks out to the island. It has amazing sunsets. You can hear the waves lapping. You can hear the seabirds. It's the dream. It's close enough to the beach, so you can just run down and have a swim but not quite so close that you're obviously not going to get overwhelmed by climate change in the next couple of years. And you think you have plenty of time. Everything seemed to work. When you bought it, after your lotto wins, you maybe even took out a mortgage. You got an insurance contract. No one said, hey, this is a seaside batch that is going to be vulnerable to climate change. In fact, we've seen very few rejections, if you like, of people building houses on beaches, on floodplains. In fact, some councils are still putting retirement villages and various new developments in places where the scientists say they're in real danger as sea levels rise. So this moment when the grenade goes off seems a long, long way away. And it seems like it'll be driven by the planet. But no. It's actually going to be a grenade that goes off in your letterbox. Because when you think about how New Zealand property is valued, how it's transacted, how information changes hands, it's worth understanding the role of the insurance, the banking, and the land information memorandum. They are a trifecta 
of potential grenades that go off in your mailbox every year or two. Insurance contracts tend to roll over every year or two. And if an insurer decides that your property on that land, that close to the beach, that close to the river, is in danger, they could choose to turn off your insurance, not renew it, or more likely, and people in Wellington can attest to this, simply massively increase the premium. And then, of course, when you go to sell a property, you'll need to know that it is bankable. And no bank will give a mortgage unless a property can be insured. And this will be a really interesting moment, a problem to know when the bank and the insurer decide that your property is not bankable and it's not insurable. And during the sale process, if you are to try and flick the potato on, flick on your property to someone else, how much information is out there, potentially on the land information memorandum, the LIM, to make that decision a decision that bankers, insurers, and others will make. Because we've sort of been here before, actually. More than a decade ago, Kapiti Coast tried to put climate change information on their limbs for coastal properties. And the landowners fought it in court and got them scrubbed off. This week on When the Facts Change, I'm going to talk to James Shaw, the Climate Change Minister about the Climate Adaptation Plan the government's working on, which will go into legislative form over the next year or so, and will create a lot of the music in this game of Pass the Parcel. For example, the data sets and the modelling, which will show which properties are bankable and insurable, and when also, whether or not and when councils are able to put that information onto a land information memorandum. And then, of course, what councils and the government will do and who will pay for the new seawall or a decision to retreat, to move that property? Who's going to pay when the value of the property that you've just pumped your money into and are relying on maybe for your retirement, who is going to compensate you? And how responsible are you if you knew, for example, when you looked at the modelling, you typed your address into the, the website, that actually there is a risk that climate change will get you in the end, or more importantly, get your insurer and your banker. These little moments when the music stops will be crucial for anyone anywhere close to a seaside, a floodplain, And of course, in lots of different ways, that climate change will affect how our land works. This week on When the Facts Change, James Shaw and I will have a chat about this game of climate change hot potato and who will get left holding the grenade or be able to work out when to flick it on just before the music stops. Well, welcome, James Shaw, to When the Facts Change. You've announced a climate adaptation plan. Uh, Can you give us the quick history on why we need one and generally what's it about? Well, uh, a lot of people are experiencing an increase in flooding uh, or in some areas of the country, fires, uh, droughts, and in the severity of all of those events. So 
you know, there are some effects of climate change that are already locked in, even with the amount of global warming that has already occurred. That's going to continue. Um, and even if we stop putting all the pollution into the atmosphere immediately, the fact is that what's up there or right now will continue to warm the atmosphere and continue to change the weather. So what that means is uh, that we need to get to grips with the idea that there are parts of the country uh, that are under increasing risk um, and uh, that we need to plan how to you know, build in some resilience. So let's take the example of Westport where I think they've had two really bad floods in two years. And now the council is looking at a couple of ways to deal with the future because they know it's going to happen again if they do nothing. That includes um, lifting up the seawalls. That sounds like an easy thing to say, but it's going to be hard. And then potentially also moving a few people. They've said, uh, we've got plans for this. We'd love to do it. Uh, but we just need some more money because we can't afford it all ourselves. How does the climate adaptation plan deal with this sort of issue? Well, okay, so there's a few things. First of all, there are, there's a number of responses that you can have, right? And doing nothing is a response and there are costs and there are consequences to that. Defending the property, which, you know, seawalls in that case, but there are, you know, um, flood levees and so on. You know, that's a response that comes with some cost. And if you ask the people of New Orleans, also some consequences when that goes awry. You can accommodate that. And we've actually seen that up around Edgecombe. You remember there were some big floods up around there. And actually what's happened there is they've put all those houses up on raised pads uh, around uh, that area. And the other one is to relocate, which is what we refer to as managed retreat. And the interesting thing about Westport is that they're actually using a combination of all of those uh, in their in their kind of plan, and because all of those carry some cost, and it is an area, you know, that is not flush with a huge amount of cash uh, on its own, um, they are saying, well, uh, how do we get some assistance with that? So the national adaptation plan in itself doesn't directly uh, respond to that question, but it lays out the kind of government work program over the course of the next six years, and there will be. Some of that falls into the planning system uh, and some of it falls into the insurance uh, industry and possible reforms uh, to uh, the insurance system. Um, and there will be, in a number of cases, a, a strong case for government support. Um, but the orientation that the government's taking is that, you know, given the scale of this around the country, we have to take an approach that's focused on hardship so on those communities and those people who really don't have the resource to be able to deal with it themselves, rather than to say, we're going to cover every loss because that's just not possible. And there are actually, there are some people who are in some of these exposed areas who actually do have the resource to be able to manage it within their own, within their own resources without relying on central government. The um, free market friendly uh, Schumpeterian Austrian economist in me says just just let the insurance and banking industry and asset values adjust to all of this and let private individuals think about their futures and bear any losses or um, have to make any investments. Why on earth should Joe Bloggs, taxpayer in Oakuni, who may not be subject to climate change problems, maybe they do, but mm. um, less so. Than Different set of problems. Yeah. Yeah. Why should they pay for someone to have a fantastic um, seawall in Westport? 
Well, this this is kind of the point that I'm making is that is that we that we need to f- focus on hardship. In many parts of the country, uh, we saw development at a time when we didn't really understand that climate change was a thing, um, and uh, we'd sort of in the 20th century, when a lot of our towns and settlements were being built, assumed that the I guess the geophysical risk from the sea or from the river or from the weather uh, was largely static. That's why we refer to things as a one in 100 year event because in the 20th century, one of these events would occur one in 100 years. The problem in Westport is that they've had two one in 100 year events, as you say, uh, in the space. I actually think it was less than, I think it was about six months. In, in Tairawhiti, they had two one in 100 year events about six weeks apart from each other. You know, someone said that was a very short hundred years. So the, so it's not the fault of those people who kind of were born and lived and grew up in those places that the risk in that place has increased. But some of these are extremely exposed, not just to the risk, but actually they, they are very deprived areas. Uh, and, and so they just don't have the, um, the resource to be able to respond uh, in the, um, Schumpeterian way that you uh, that you describe. H- having said that, you know we are, I'm, I'm, and I said that, I've said this a thousand times. We've got to have a way of understanding what the appropriate share of the risk and the cost is between the property owner, their bank, their insurance company, their local authority, and central government. And you and you have to kind of work all of that out in a way that doesn't create yet more moral hazard because we've had other examples around the world and here in New Zealand where central governments come in and said, okay, well, we'll underwrite the insurance or we'll build seawalls or whatever have you. And, of course, that just encourages people to continue to develop areas that are frankly inappropriate. Because there's a whole area of moral hazard here around... Plausible deniability, information asymmetry, where I know that this is a risky place, but the bank and the insurer don't know, or maybe the insurer and the bank know, but I don't know, and the real estate agent makes a point of knowing absolutely nothing. Yes, the real estate agent doesn't want to know. <laughs> Yeah. So, and, and you make the point, rightly, that there will be some communities who are really tough and, and cannot afford to make these changes or investments. But then there are other communities, the seaside uh, property communities, who still seem to be buying houses, getting loans, getting insurance on all of these properties, yeah. going, well, as long as I can buy it now and flick it on before someone else works it out, I'm sweet. And if there is a moment where they're telling us I can't live here anymore or we need a big seawall, I'll just use my connections with the council and the government to make sure someone else pays the money for mm. the big seawall or to buy me out at the CV before prices start falling. Yeah, well, there's a lot in there, Bernard. So the first one is um, in the National Adaptation Plan, we've said that we're going to become more directive about future development. In 2017, we issued uh, sea level guidance for councils, and it was almost one of the first things that I did in my portfolio. Um, the work had been prepared, but the previous government hadn't released it uh, during an election year, strangely enough. Um, and so, so we released that, 
the evidence shows that there are places around the country where actually in spite of that guidance, councils have continued to authorise development. So Any, Anywhere in particular? Uh, the, from the top of my head, I can't remember the exact things, but I, I've seen you know, um, papers that have kind of outlined that that's occurred. But that's one of the reasons why we're going to get more directive about it, to say, no, actually, it's, this is not guidance. This is going to become part of the national planning framework uh, and so on. But that does then raise questions around future liability because if councils had their guidance and then they chose not to follow it, well, you know, I don't see why central government should pick up the ticket for that. Then you've got uh, the question around the information that's on your land information memorandum, which there's been some very patchy uh, fits and starts at trying to get that resolved in this country. So we've said, actually, no, that information will start to appear and there'll be a consistent standard for that around the country. Just a, a quick um, bit of climate data history for people who may not have <laughs> known. Uh, I think it was almost 10 years ago, Kapiti Coast That's District right. Council yeah. came out and said, everyone should put the um, sea level change uh, yeah. stuff on their limbs and all hell broke loose that ended up in the High Court and the High Court said the council couldn't do it this particular way yeah. and uh, and the property owners celebrated and there is no information on the limbs from memory. That's right. So how And many you... of those properties have since been on sold. Yeah. 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 And there's some real estate agents saying I know nothing. Anyway, yeah. So how would, you, how would the Climate Adaptation Plan make sure that didn't happen again well, and it didn't actually go back to the High Court to get relitigated? Well, one, well, one of the things that we can do is we can indemnify councils from making that decision, right? So where a council says we are going to put that information on limbs or we're going to require that information to be put on limbs, that they cannot be sued for that decision, right? I think that's really important. Um, and actually, um, the late great departed Dave Cole, Mayor of Dunedin, um, that was one of the single most important things on his list when he was um, both Mayor of Dunedin and Head of uh, Local Government New Zealand was saying that if you can just backstop the councils to do the right thing, then you'll actually see a lot of this um, information becoming a lot more transparent. The other thing that we're doing later this year uh, and throughout the next year will be um, making the kind of data and information that people need much more publicly available. So that's been um, quite constrained, the way that it's been managed out of NIWA, you know, kind of doing it council by council, client by client. We're actually going to basically set up a public information portal and just have the whole lot, um, all, of, all, all, all that information. Is it all going to be free so that some bright yes. spark with an app can yes. allow you to put the um, address in and find out whether or not it's still going to be there in 100 years' time? Yeah, well, yes. And actually, there are some versions of that already occurring, right? So you saw the NZC Rise project that came out coincidentally uh, about the same time we were consulting on the National Adaptation Plan. That took that data set and then it just laid another data set, which was subsidence data, uh, and, and put the two together and, and gave us a map essentially of what's going on in different parts of the coastline around New Zealand. Um, and so, and we know that the insurance companies have got um, this data already and the banks have got this data already, what we want to be able to do is to make it um, publicly available so everybody's off singing off the same song sheet and so that it's easily accessible to kind of anyone, whether it's an individual who's kind of, you know, considering, you know, their new home uh, or um, whether it's uh, a company, you know, like an insurance company that wants to 
you know, um, sort of develop some really sophisticated risk modeling. Um, and, and I think that's really important. I think it's actually probably the single most important thing in the plan is to get that data out and to make it public. Because I've been surprised um, whenever I go on holiday and I look in the real estate agent windows for fun, there's still an awful lot of stuff that's being for sale. Mm. I, I'm not hearing stories of insurers going, okay, that street on that beach is now no longer insurable. Um, how advanced are the banks and the insurers on this? Because uh, in theory, a lot of the um, canaries in the mine will will pop up and die when those decisions are made. Yeah, so there's an increasing use of um, risk-based insurance models where uh, any given location, will, their premiums will be affected by the risk profile of that particular location. Um, but I, even then I would describe it as, and, and you know, they're, they're pretty sophisticated, but it's still not that sophisticated. So for example, if you have a house where you've built it on a two meter raised pad, <laughs> right, uh, next to a house where you haven't, um, then obviously the insurance premiums for those two houses should be different, right? Because one's simply built to um, deal with the risk and the other one is not built to deal with the risk and so they should have different insurance premiums. At the moment my understanding is that they will largely attract the same thing on the basis of their location. So so we haven't quite gotten as granular uh, as as you want but there's an interesting tension right because and you saw this in Wellington not so long ago with the insurance the uh, earthquake insurance stuff is that some move towards that uh, risk-based pricing helps to send a price signal. I think that's really important. And some people were really pushing back on that because of course that affected the place that they're already in. But the answer I would say isn't to do less of it. It's actually to extrapolate that out further and actually to, to get much more granular, much more sophisticated. Because that's where you can say to a property owner, well look, this is a floodplain, um, but there are actually things that you can do without moving that would dramatically reduce the risk profile of your house or your business or whatever it is, and thus would lower your insurance premiums. Right, so that, that's that, you kind of want to get to a place where where that market's working really well. Because you know there is a, a risk here that a whole bunch of people go, well, when I bought it, I didn't know that it was on a floodplain yes. and that there would be this new data came along, and then the government comes up with this new data, and suddenly I can't get insured or yeah. it's more expensive. Someone's got to compensate that for me, right? Surely it's not my fault. Yeah. Well, that's so there's a piece of work that um, David Clark is leading through uh, EQC and, and others, which is to look at our flood risk model. Um, and that is essentially because it's actually to deal with exactly the problem that you've just outlined, right? Which is, okay, so you've got this kind of world in the future where you know, everyone's got perfect information that that's the insurance system's working really well. In that sense, people respond to that. But we but our starting point is not that. And you've got to get from A to B without causing total carnage. Right. And and so that that is a, a fairly significant project that David's leading on for the government. Now another example where um, this issue of climate change um, rubber hits the road uh, is in Wellington in 20, 
14 when we had a storm that was bigger than the Wahini, mm. and it destroyed the seawall along the beach at Island Bay. And Dofiro Bay. And, yes, you know a few other locations. Yeah, that coast. yeah, no, yeah. no. It was a it was a hairy drive around yeah. the around the coast for a few months. In yeah. fact, more than a few months because when particularly the Island Bay um, counts council decision to whether or not to rebuild the wall yeah. or have a think about what you do because in theory you could. Um, get rid of the wall and allow some um, natural sand hills and things to yeah. deal with these sorts of things. Um, there was immediately a huge political controversy because, you know, this was a beautiful sea wall. It was supporting all the asset values of those people who paid high prices for their seaside properties. And um, there's no way that we should have a no sea wall for, you know, how long, however long it took to make a decision. And yeah. so eventually the council caved under under pressure. How do you make sure that those sorts of, you know, um, what I call lizard brain <laughs> political instincts don't yeah. overwhelm the sort of long-term planning system? Well, because it's long-term planning and what you had in Island Bay was short-term planning. You know, you, you had to have an immediate response because the wall had already washed away. And, and so... What we want to, and, and that's going to keep going on, right? Um, I mean, you've got Tairawhiti and other places around, you know, that, you know, Timaru recently, you know, underwater again. So the government and, and local government are always in the position of having to respond to an immediate emergency, right? What we're trying to do with the uh, National Adaptation Plan is try to get ahead of some of this stuff, which is to say, well, if the probability is, that that coastline is going to become repeatedly inundated over X period of time, um, then wouldn't it make more sense to try and get ahead of an emergency response and actually integrate it into our planning system uh, so that we, we do develop a response um, in a more considered fashion? Because I know the council, you're right, the Wellington City Council did look at um, uh, allowing some of that to return to sand dunes, um, and that's a very cost-effective method of coastal mitigation but uh, they were dealing with the fact that they you know that there's a road that a lot of people use for access and those houses along there you know they couldn't wait for sand dunes to develop in front of them right they were in a, in a different position so I, I think probably for a while you're going to see a bit of both I think that you'll see people making short-term decisions to deal with an immediate crisis even whilst we try and get ahead of it. I was sort of thinking, I mean, I know that this is such a cliche, but it is exactly the kind of, you know, we currently spend all of our money at the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. We're trying to transfer at least some of that money into building a proper bloody fence at the top of the cliff so that, so that you then spend less uh, on the ambulance. But you are still going to be dealing with some of those emergencies for quite some time. Win the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% 
last year. Now central banks have reacted, they've, they've tightened monetary policy, they've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we've seen inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of our housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tāmaki Makaurau, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. One way to do the planning and to you know, get ahead of the curve a bit is to invest in some infrastructure or yeah. um, do things ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And often that requires someone's balance sheet. So uh, you know, the local government might have to borrow some money to build a seawall. The local government might have to um, put some sort of extra levy in to pay for a seawall. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, gov- the central government might have to borrow some money to pay to um, strengthen a motorway or um, uh, shift a bunch of people or whatever. But essentially it requires someone to use their balance sheets and also to use their revenue tools yes. to deal with the issue. Right now, we seem to have a political consensus and I won't sort of dive into the debate on this because that's another half an hour podcast, (laughs) in which both parties, both of the major parties, seem to have this view that you can't change the tax system that much. That would mean revenues as a share of GDP rise above 30% or so. And secondly, that you can't really use the central government's balance sheet to have public debt, net public debt, much more than 30% of GDP over the long term. Mm. Can we actually adapt to climate change, let alone deal with all the other things around housing and child poverty and all of those things, but let's talk, look at adapt to climate change or even in, invest in uh, the infrastructure to um, reduce our emissions. Can we do that with that 30, those 30, 30 
fiscal guide rails in place, which effectively flow down to local government as well. Yeah, personally, I don't believe, I think that anybody who thinks that you can is living in a fantasy world. I just don't think it's possible. And, and, and when you factor in local government, you know, I know that there's, there'll be criticism saying, uh, you know, 30% of GDP for uh, government is, you know, um, kind of a reasonable number in the, if you compare it to the OECD. But if you look at um, local government's share, of GDP, it's about 11%, which is one of the bottom in the OECD. So um, when you add central government and local government together, um, we are well below average uh, in terms of what we spend, and yet we're expecting the same kind of results as that if we were above average or better. Uh, and not only that, but for the last 30 or 40 years, we have dramatically underspent on all forms of infrastructure, whether it's three waters or transport or you, know, you name it, um, uh, energy uh, and so on. And so we're having to do a, an entire generation of catch up as well as essentially build a next generation on top of that. So you're kind of having to do the equivalent of two generations worth of build all at once. And, and that suggests that you're going to have to go find the money from somewhere. And so at, at the moment, I just, I, I, I get quite frustrated about this because I, I, just, I, I just don't think that um, as a country we've really kind of grasp that nettle. I, I think that this government is um, kind of getting there, right, sort of moving in that in that direction. And I think that, and partially this is a result of COVID, where we suddenly realised that if you wanted to solve a big problem, you had to spend quite big money. And actually kind of people were okay with that because it kept a lot of people alive for a long period of time. But we've just had the finance minister commit to another X years at 30% or, or below, um, aside from financial crises or pandemics or earthquakes, mm. but always with the North Star of fiscal thinking get down to 30%. And just in the last week or two has come back at the opposition who accuse him of being a, um, an addict to spending saying, well, I, don't worry guys, look at the, at the Treasury's forecast showing they're going to get back to 30%, which is you know, where we're going to get to. Why aren't we having this debate? Why a national uh, way? Why do they think that we can achieve all these things with the magical thinking of of doing it outside or you'd need to talk changing? to them, Bernard? <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but, but, I, but I, you, you signed up to that um, twenty seventeen agreement, which I missed at the time as a as an important thing. But that said, you know, um, we'll keep it at around thirty, and at that point, the net debt was twenty, which pretty much the same as the 30 now. You know, you, you signed up to that then. How do we make sure that, you know, times have changed, we've understood things a bit better? That times it? have changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. Have changed dramatically. And I think, I don't think that we had, I don't think we had appreciated the scale of underinvestment in infrastructure at that time around the country. You know, and when you look at, you know, this, like the three waters piece, right? It was after Havelock North, uh, and the um, reports that came out about the state of the country's water infrastructure that pointed to the probability that we've got about 150, 140, $150 billion worth of re asset replacement that we need to do in the coming decades. That wasn't apparent then. Um, I mean, you know, we thought, oh, it's probably a wee bit dodgy, but we didn't have anything, anything That's true. like there this. There was no infrastructure no, commission then either. No, no, precisely, right. We climate, actually, we didn't, not only commission. did we not build the infrastructure, we actually didn't have information about it. You could double or triple the amount of money that we spend on transport in this country and it wouldn't even touch the sides in terms of 
uh, scale of what we need to do there, given population growth, not just over the past couple of decades, but projected population growth over coming decades. Housing, obviously, I mean, that's kind of, you know, been a frontline story for forever. So I, I think all of those chickens came home to roost at about the same time, and then COVID hit, <laughs> right? And and so I think the view of, of the kind of, long-term fiscal outlook for this country needs to be on a fundamentally different premise than it was only five years ago. We're just in a, it's just a different operating environment that we're in. And then when you layer what we need to do to adapt to the effects of climate change, which is mostly an infrastructure and planning question, what we need to do to um, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, um, which is largely uh, a infrastructure and planning question, but also innovation and investment and so on, then, I mean, to tell you the truth, rather than getting into this reductionist, how do we spend as little money as possible, I think we should treat this period as the greatest opportunity, investment opportunity in generations, because we've got to build the whole country <laughs> all over again. We've got to build water, we've got to build transport, we've got to build housing, we've got to build towns, uh, you know, we've got to build energy, you name it. And infrastructure should always count on the asset side of the balance sheet. Um, and so you can spend the cash, but you, you get an asset out of that and you get a return on that asset. So one of the really interesting things I thought in the report was this idea that the Treasury should start to build climate adaptation into their fiscal planning models. Yes. Because if you were a... Um, very clever actuary, uh, you can turn everything into an actuarial issue. Yeah. I, you can um, work out what your long-term costs and benefits will be, particularly when you're starting to look at carbon credit liabilities. Yeah. And then, you know, um, these one in 100 year storms happening every six months for the next 100 years, what does that do to the costs of running government and everything else? Yeah. You could... Uh, quite easily, uh, if you were doing things properly at the Treasury, come up with an argument to say that for the Crown's balance sheet, you must yeah. spend this money on this infrastructure and uh, with a proper uh, um, discount rate, uh, it makes sense to do this. Um, well, how how much of how much work has to be done inside Treasury to make sure that the advice coming back to the politicians and the public is <laughs> much clearer about? Well, actually, it actually makes financial sense to do this. Heaps, bro. Heaps, bro. <laughs> well, so to be a little bit more sophisticated than that, two things. First of all, uh, the National Adaptation Plan that we published the other day commits Treasury to doing that um, economic and fiscal. Um, climate analysis next year. So they've uh, started to do that work in the last long-term fiscal update, which uh, fiscal forecast, which is great, but they, they've, they've been tasked with doing a specific piece of work around fiscal and economic uh, modelling for climate uh, next year, which I think will shape some of their thinking. So um, Treasury are doing some of that work. Just um, if you can, take your climate change minister head on off and put your Green Party, and I was going to say co-leader member head of, on, but member, member of parliament, parliament on, head on. What do you think should be the proposal to deal with this, um, particularly around this 30-30 rule, which both parties seem committed to at the moment? 
Well, I think that we should be, I think I've always said that government should be sized according to the problem, right, rather than a, you know, a sort of a fairly arbitrary number. Now, I buy, you know, the idea that you sort of want to carry a level of debt in the background that allows you to scale up that debt when you have a crisis, and we do have crises on a you know reasonably regular basis. So you need the ability to kind of manage up and down off off the back of that. But I think you know um, looking at uh, long term infrastructure financing, um, we've done very little of that uh, in this country. We are our Treasury going to be releasing the first set of green bonds at some point, um, which will play into the adaptation space. So I think you, you know, you're sort of starting to see some of that thinking come in, but I think we just need to be much more sophisticated about that. Because and and we, we do need to have a conversation around tax, because I just think it's, you know, we, we, can, we cannot have all the nice things that we want if we're not prepared to pay for them. It's hard, though, with all those lizard brain voters and politicians out there um, who understand that the moment you propose a new tax and you lift that 30 number mm. to 31 or 32 and you do it with a, could be anything, could be a wealth tax, could be a new income tax, could be some new pollution tax. Um, everyone goes, no. Nope. <laughs> I'm just trying to get my head around the political economy of it because right now, even after these crises of the yeah. last three or four years, you know, the two sides are in fact locked in if anything, they're cementing in the thirty thirty stuff. Yeah, look, I agree, and um, you know, I guess we, you know, we have an opportunity to debate that every three years in an election campaign. Although that's often the least sophisticated debate that you ever get around those. Oh, I'd host a national television show talking about thirty thirty. Oh, I think we should. Uh, you'd, I'd be there. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, the other thing is. You know, you've got to remember that there's kind of no one way to do it, right? I mean, uh, if you look at the um, proposed unemployment insurance program, I know that there's people who are going, ah, oh, it's a jobs tax and so on and so forth. But that is essentially a proposal to raise revenue for a very targeted purpose, right? Which is to support people through a period of churn in employment, which I have to say, given what's coming, you're going to see more of. So that's a cost that's been borne somewhere in the system already that has been made transparent through the use of a levy and a insurance, a mandatory insurance scheme, right? So I guess what I'm saying is that there's no, if I was just to say, oh, well, we should stick tax rates up by 10%, that's as arbitrary as saying that we should keep, you know, our debt to GDP ratio at 30%. The other option, which seems to be talked about when you don't want to increase general taxes, is to go for a demand management style tax, uh, congestion charges, yeah. you know, water charges, and the likes. Do you think we can solve our problem with these very, you know, um, demand managementy style? Well, options? I think, but I, I, but you got to remember that what the the purpose of demand management pricing isn't to raise revenue, right? It's to manage demand. And so I actually think, I think we should be using more of those tools uh, where it's appropriate if you're trying to manage demand, right? So I'm a supporter of congestion charging because it helps you manage congestion. If it raises revenue at the same time, then you should do what the City of London did and plough all of that back into measures to reduce congestion, i.e. increase public transport, get more people around faster, 
right? So that, that and voters seem to like these hypothecated funds for some. They reason. do. Well, again, it, it, you know, you're talking about the Lizard brand. People people like the idea of like, okay, if you're going to take some of my money, I want to be able to see transparency that it goes to the thing that you're raising the money for. When we consulted on uh, the Zero Carbon Act way back in 2018. You know, we said, what should we do with revenues raised from the emissions trading scheme? Because we're putting in a cap and we were going to start raising revenue for it, which we'd never had before because we were never auctioning units before. And 98% of submitters said, we want to see that go into reducing emissions because that's what it's, you know, if you're going to price emissions, then it should go to reducing emissions. So we have. Like that's where the Climate Emergency Response Fund came from. So um, I, I completely understand it. Treasury loathes it, and I, I know why, but I, I think... You know, if you're talking about political economy, I actually don't, I'm not afraid of that kind of tool at all. We, before we go off into a um, fun chat about um, fiscal strategy, um, we've blown our time. Um, <laughs> James Tune in for another exciting installment. Oh, yeah. No, there's a TV special. Uh, James Shaw, um, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank I'm making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.